0: All right, well, you can open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, and we're plowing our way through it. This is how we like to teach, is to go through the Bible, explain it, and apply it so that we know what God has for us. This is another kind of funny morning. If you're tuning in uh, through the YouTube channel, welcome. I know a lot of you stayed home, and uh, avoiding the smoke, it's kind of funny. My family was heading out uh, to Simi Valley earlier this week. We left Friday to see some of my family out there. And uh, the fires were so bad going through Pasadena. One of my kids asked, can I put my mask on? And, and so we got the mask. They're all wearing masks in the cars we drive. You know, we've been resisting masks. <laughs> the masks are so uncomfortable. And yet, here we are all wanting to put on our masks. It's just bizarre. I mean, we, sh- we expect nothing less in, in the year 2020, I guess, right? So it was such an odd year. Um, But here we are and I'm glad you're here and we're going to gather to preach the word and to encourage one another and Lord willing uh, to be conformed to the image of Christ to learn what his word has to say to us. So I want to invite you to Mark chapter 3 and we're going to look at verses 22 to 30. This is a text that we kind of skipped over last week and we looked at the, uh, if we're talking about a sandwich, we looked at the slices of bread on either side. Now we're going to look in the middle part of it. Where Jesus is accused of something in the prior section in verses 20 and 21 his family was accusing him of being crazy It says in verse 21 his family heard all that he was doing and they said he's out of his mind And uh, they went up to kind of confront him Maybe they wanted to stop him from embarrassing himself and you see that in verses 31 to 35 And Jesus uses that as a teaching moment to describe who his true spiritual family is and his true spiritual family is the one who does the will of God. That's his brother. That's his sister. That's his mother. That's his. That's his family. There, the people who are committed to obey the will of God. That's the true. Uh, that's what the true family of God is marked out by. But in the between that section, you get this text. In my ESV Bible, it has the uh, the editorial heading "Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit." And I wonder if some of you are wondering why did we skip over that part. That's that's a hard part. Does he not want to teach on the, the, the hard stuff? Well, no. We were trying to, it was a hundred something last week. We tried to speed through it. And now we're going to address the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit this morning because this is often a text that comes with a whole lot of questions. And so we want to unpack it for you and make sure you understand what Jesus is teaching in this text. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. Uh, many of you have probably read the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Ashley's in the middle of them right now. I finished them um, uh, last year, and I've read through them more than once. I just really enjoy reading through them. But C.S. Lewis wrote more than those those books. He wrote a lot of apologetic-type books that defend Christianity. And uh, one of his most famous apologetics, one of his most famous defenses of the deity of Christ has been called the trilemma. Uh, the trilemma. Uh, the word dilemma, 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 to, uh, it's the idea that there's two paths, two divergent choices, and you got to choose one. A trilemma uh, is the same idea, but there's three. Three choices that everyone must make, and he applies that to Jesus Christ. There are three choices before you when you're looking at the person of Jesus Christ. He's, he's shortened it uh, like this. You either call him a liar... You call him a lunatic, or you call him Lord. That's it. That's the trilemma. Those are the three options you have with Jesus Christ. He is a liar in that he uh, was scheming and uh, deceitful, and through the Gospels, all that he's teaching about who he is and what he came to do is a sham. It's a lie. It's a it's a fraud that Jesus isn't actually God incarnate. Jesus isn't actually the Savior of the world, uh, and so... If you're going to read the Bible, you've got to either say he's, a, he's lying about it all, or you can say that he's a lunatic. That's what his family was saying. Remember, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. You could say he wasn't necessarily lying, but he sincerely believed all the stuff he was saying. He actually thought he was the Messiah. He actually thought he was God incarnate, in which case he's absolutely out of his mind. He's nuts. That's what his family thought. Or you could say, the last one, that, of course, he is Lord. He's Lord. He is, in fact, all that He said He was. He wasn't lying. He's not crazy. He is God incarnate, come to be the Savior. He's the predicted Messiah of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. And if He is, in fact, as Lord, we can't patronize Him by just calling Him a good teacher. We actually have to bow before Him and give Him our full-hearted worship. This text, from verses 20 to 35, really show us all three of these options. The, the family's saying he's the lunatic. The scribes here, and this is the text we're going to look at, are saying he's a liar. they saying he's a liar. Let, let's read this, and let's uh, see what these scribes say to Jesus, and we're going to see what Jesus responds. And we're going to realize at the end that really the only option is to call him Lord, bow at his feet, and submit to him as our Lord and Savior. Verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven of the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. We're going to look at three elements of this text. We're going to look at the scribes accusing, we're going to look at Jesus refuting, and then we're going to look at Jesus' warning at the end. So let's start with the accusation. Let's start with the scribes accusing Jesus. And you can look there in verse 22, the scribes, these were guys coming from Jerusalem. These would have been well-educated religious elite. And all throughout this book, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, the religious elite have not exactly been on the right side of Jesus. And so here they come, and they are coming really to analyze and make a declaration on the ministry of Jesus. Who is this man? Can we trust him? Should we listen to him? And so they come down, and their analysis is this. He is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul, it's a word that came from uh, an ancient Philistine Canaanite god, Baal, uh, Zebul, two words, and it eventually became one word, Beelzebul, by the first century. It was a God, it was a a word, a God that was called Baal the Prince. Baal the Prince, it was a ruler God that they believed in, in uh, the Philistine world. And it was eventually come to be understood as equivalent with Satan, Satan himself. And you see that in the rest of the section where Jesus understands them to mean, that they're saying that he's possessed by by, by Satan himself. Now let me just tell you how strong a statement this is. This is not the family statement. The family's saying, hey, this guy's a little nuts. This guy's off his rocker. He's crazy. Let's go talk to him. This is taking it further. This is not just saying that Jesus has got a little bit, a little bit of his doctrine wrong and he needs to be corrected. This is not saying that he's you know, doing some harm to our religious system here and we've got to go do something about it. They're actually saying that he is possessed, demon possession, but they're not even saying that this is the possession of a demon. Uh, They're talking about the possession of the prince of demons, the ruler of demons. Uh, By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Satan himself. Uh, This is remarkable that they would come to this conclusion, isn't it? That They're not just saying this guy has a demon. They're saying that this guy has the prince of all demons. Think about this, guys. Jesus has been nothing but loving. Jesus has said nothing but truth. Jesus has shown nothing except power to heal, power to teach, authority over unclean spirits. And these scribes come down and they evaluate this ministry of love, this ministry that's perfect, this ministry that's holy and pure and good and accomplishing exactly the will of God. And the analysis of these religious people is that it's utterly evil. Utterly evil. To the degree that they're scraping and clawing just to get the right language to describe, in fact, how evil it is. They say it's so evil that the most evil being we can think of, Satan himself, Beelzebub, is in fact the one who's possessing this man. This is not God's act. This is an act of Satan. This is an act of the enemy. This is an act of wickedness. This is evil incarnate. Isn't that remarkable? See, what they cannot do, what the scribes cannot do, is deny that he's powerful. You see that? They don't say anything about his power. They don't come down and say, this is a really big parlor trick. This guy's a magician. He's tricking everyone. Everyone's been duped, but all this power is a sham. Look, look, he's got the cards up his sleeve or, or whatever. You know, he's, he's doing this all by human power, and he's tricked the crowds. He's, a hip, he's hypnotizing them. He's, that's not what they say. They come down and they, they have no way to deny the power that is behind Jesus' ministry. What they do deny is the source. So they're ready to admit that Jesus is acting with incredible power. But they say that the power is coming from Satan, not God. They dispute his, the source of his power. This is remarkable. God himself is at work amongst his people. And here are these religious people calling it the work of Satan. You ever think if that ever happens today? You think it could? God's at work. God's message is being preached. Powerful things are happening. The Spirit's moving among people. And some people can analyze it and they can look at it and say, whatever's happening there is evil, bad, it's no good. I think it does happen, actually, probably more than we think. I think often it happens when the Word of God is preached clearly and unapologetically, and there's uh, uh, clarity about what the message of the gospel is. When you talk about the nature of God and the nature of sin, the nature of our depravity as sinners and our need of redemption, the, the nature of the depths of our sin and how it infiltrates the crevices of our heart. You start talking about that. And you know, what does the Holy Spirit do? You know, often He begins convicting people of their sin, right? And does conviction, you when you get convicted by the Holy Spirit, is that a good feeling? You know, sometimes when, when the Bible's preached and the sin is talked about, Sometimes we walk away feeling kind of icky. Like, oh man, I'm much worse than I thought I was. And there's sometimes this temptation to push away the conviction. There's this temptation to to explain it away or to make excuses or to move out of the situation that's convicting me because it's just too hard. I don't want to face that reality about myself. And then sometimes I've even heard that people will leave a situation like that where The word is really powerful and the word's convicting them and they're being convicted with their own sin uh, that's too hard for them and so they'll walk away and then they'll say something like man they were just they were they were too pushy they were too harsh or they were too much in your business or whatever it might be and it's almost like that the convicting power of the spirit is being set aside and it's being ignored and it's being labeled as something that's bad Sometimes I think we are resisting the power of the Holy Spirit when He's trying to humble us, and we can call that good work of God. We can call it something other than good. Maybe we don't call it evil, but maybe we run away from it because we don't really like it very much. Well, the scribes are doing something like this, but they're doing it much more than that. They're—it's doing more than just kind of denying that feeling. They're, They're doing more than just trying to ignore the conviction. They're actually settled in their understanding that they think that Jesus is, in fact, possessed by Satan. Let's look at Jesus' response, Jesus refuting this. Verse 23, He called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus just starts to obliterate their argument, their logic. Come on, guys, think this through. Come on, if I'm possessed by Satan, and I'm casting out demons... You think Satan is divided? How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. He's basically saying, listen, why would Satan, the prince of demons, be be ganging up on his demons? Why would he be casting them out? They're doing his work. They're accomplishing his will. They're there to deceive. They're there to harm. They're there to uh, thwart the work of Christ. Why would Satan be casting out demons? Satan against Satan? No way. Jesus is saying this doesn't make logical sense. Today, I think football starts in the uh, in America, right? So imagine this, football lovers. Your offensive line starts trying to tackle the quarterback. That just doesn't make sense. Why would they do that? I mean, if... the now, obviously, they're not going to win any games that way. That's a bad strategy. <laughs> Jesus' point is listen, Satan and the demons are on the same team, and they're not going to team up or they're not going to fight against each other. They're working together. And Then, verse 27, he goes, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may indeed plunder his house. And Jesus is describing what is actually happening. He's giving a little, in an economy of words, he's describing what Jesus is doing with his own ministry. No one can enter a strong man's house. Who's the strong man? What's his house? Well, he's referring to Satan. The strong man is Satan. The house is this world. Uh, This is what he's getting at. Basically, you you remember, the Bible teaches that this world has uh, a ruler. And in the New Testament, Paul calls Satan the ruler of this world. He calls him the prince of the power of the air. There's an authority that Satan has over this cursed, sinful world, right? And so he has a kind of reign over here, and all the demons kind of are under his authority, and lost people who have not repented and turned to Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 2, are following him. And so Satan's got this, the, the imagery is that Satan's got this house. Satan's got this fortified house, and over it he rules, and he's got his captives and jesus is saying listen here's what's happening you can't just go into the, the strong man's house i can't just enter into this world satan's house and, and start plundering it unless i first plunder or first i bind the strong man He's, jesus is saying listen i got more authority than the strong man jesus is saying i'm uh, getting right into this house that is uh, operated by satan i'm breaking in i'm binding the strong man satan has no authority over me And what I'm doing is I'm plundering his property. That which he has tried to lay claim on. The lost souls that he has tried to capture and bring to himself. Jesus is saying, I've entered the strong man's house. I'm plundering his goods. I've bound Satan because he can't do anything to stop me. Satan is a helpless child before the power of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is plundering Satan's goods. That is to say that Jesus is breaking into this fallen world and he is rescuing the captives. He is setting them free. He is healing the sick. He is casting out the demons. We see that all through the Gospels. He is going right there in the heart of the enemy's territory, behind enemy lines, and he is accomplishing something no one else can do because he's stronger than the strong man. And he binds him so the strong man can't do anything to stop him. This is a great picture of Jesus as a hero. Here we are all like captives to Satan, lost, helpless, unable to fix our dilemma, unable to get out of the bonds ourselves, unable to free ourselves from sin, unable to accomplish anything to change our spiritual situation. And Jesus is like this hero, this champion that breaks in and starts plundering so that all the captives are being set free all those who are lost are being found all his children that are his own that he loves that he has come for are being redeemed this is a good place to pause and stop and say that if you are a captive to satan (laughs) if you are a captive to your sin and you can't change your situation and you know it you know that you can't fix your problem. You, you're, you've come to that conclusion. Here's a picture that will lift your spirits that Jesus is stronger than Satan. And Jesus has power over sin and over death and over him. And Jesus has come. He has lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He has died on the cross, the death that you deserved. And he has rose from the dead. He's alive right now. And he is still to this day plundering that which Satan has tried to claim. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy and for forgiveness will be forgiven, will be rescued. And you need not do anything. You cannot do anything. What you must do is cry out with the heart of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the mercy and forgiveness that he offers. And you will be forgiven and you will be set free and you will be redeemed and reconciled to God. And so Jesus refutes the bad logic of these scribes by saying I'm not going up against myself why would I do that rather what I am doing I'm binding the strong man I'm invading the strong man's house and I'm plundering his the property he thinks is his and I'm saving the lost I'm redeeming my people I'm healing them I'm bringing my salvation to bear on the lives of these people so that's what Jesus is doing that's his ministry But now look at verse 28 He issues a warning. And this is where most of the questions rise. Let me read it again, just to show you where some of the questions come up. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. Let me just start unpacking some of the words and phrases here so we can understand it, and then we've we'll got to get some of the context so we do know what's going on here. He says, all sins will be forgiven. That does not mean that there's no hell, There's hell's empty. That's not what he's saying, because clearly, if he was teaching that, he would be contradicting himself. Jesus does teach about the nature of an eternal punishment in a place called hell, or the lake of fire described in Revelation. That is a reality. So he's not teaching that every last sin is, Uh, no matter who is forgiven. He is more describing the kinds of sins that will be forgiven. And so if he's talking about categories of sin, kinds of sins, all kinds, all categories of sins will be forgiven. That is the nature of the redemption of Christ. He is saving all manner of people. And whatever blasphemies they utter, so even many of the blasphemies that people have uttered against Christ will be forgiven. But listen to this, verse 29, and here's some of the, where the confusion comes in. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And so he describes a particular blasphemy, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, against the Holy Spirit, and he says that those who do that never have forgiveness. This has been described as the un. Pardonable sin or the unforgivable sin, he goes on to say, This is an eternal sin. This is a sin that will not be washed away. This is a sin that will not be forgiven. What does he mean? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, let's back up a little bit. In Mark chapter 1, just turn there real quick. I'm just going to point this out. In verse 12, as he's going to face temptation in the wilderness, the text says. That the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Jesus, in his life, is being filled and led by the Holy Spirit. He is living as a perfect man, led by the Spirit. In Mark 1.12, we see that show up. In the Gospel of Luke, if you were to read through it, paying close attention to the amount of times Jesus is described as being led by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, you would uh, see that it happens... Frequently, in, Mo- in Luke chapter four verse fourteen, he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So Jesus's life is being lived in the power of the Spirit. Jesus's healings are happening in the power of the Spirit. Jesus's teachings are being taught in the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what's happening in Mark chapter three. These scribes, they come up from Jerusalem. They understand his claims. They recognize his power. They see his authority over sickness, over the disciples, over the demons. They cannot deny any of those things. All of that is very clear to them. And with full knowledge of who Jesus is claiming to be, and with full understanding of the things he's doing, They reject him. You see what's happening. They see it all. They know it all. They understand it. It's cognitively all there. They need no more information. And having all the information, having seen it with their own eyes, having experienced it firsthand, watching the crowds, seeing the miracles, they evaluate it, and they come to the conclusion that it is all a sham. More than that, this is the work of Satan is their conclusion. They see it, understand it, experience it. They cannot deny the power, but they deny the source. That is the context in which Jesus is issuing a warning of a, for unforgivable sin. I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 6 because I think the author of Hebrews also speaks of this particular sin. And it's the same idea. What he's talking about here, you got to remember, in the in the book of Hebrews, the author's writing to uh, a group of people that's made up of some subgroups, and and one of the kind of subgroups that's that's there in the in uh, that the in the audience that the writer is addressing would be a group of people who are kind of flirting with Christianity. They haven't really gone all in. They're kind of stick, sticking their their toe in the pool a little bit. They're wondering if they should the church, they're hanging around uh, the Christian, the early church, the Christian message, they're hearing it all, and and the writer of Hebrews wants to warn them about what's going to happen if they they know all this stuff, and they taste all this stuff, and then they move away from it. Look at this, in in chapter 6 verse 4, this is another one of those texts that can be really confusing, but I think when you understand it in this context, it really helps answer some of the questions. Verse 4, he says for it is impossible so Again, the, the, the idea that this cannot happen. It's an unforgivable thing. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tr- or have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt what's he what's he describing these these, he's describing a people you see the words verse 4 these people have been enlightened not in the sense that they've been saved but in the sense that they've come to understand what the gospel message is they've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the holy spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of god That is to say that they've been around the church long enough to see the spirit working in the hearts and lives of the people around them, and they've heard the word of God preached that they got a good grasp on what it means. They understand the gospel. They don't have any further questions about what the gospel is. They're tasting some of the goodness of what what the what God gives us in His Word. It is not referring to someone who has taken salvation. It's not referring to as someone who has repented of their sin and embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior. He's referring to people who have known it, who have been around it, who have tasted it, who have seen it, who have experienced it. And then they fall away. They end up rejecting it. He goes on to give it a, an analogy in verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a, cro- a crop useful to those whose, for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles... If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and is end to be burned. What's he saying? There's there's some people. Uh, it's like a it's like a field of land that has seed in it, and the rain falls, and the rain falls, and if it only produces thorns and thistles, this is a land that has worthless fruit. It's not responding to the m- message. It's not responding rightly to the rain in the in the parable there. And what he's, that is going to describe is that there are people who the rain of the gospel falls and the, the nutrients of the soil of the church that they go to, it gives them everything they need to know. It gives them all that they need to see. And if still, after having all that, they still walk away from it. Basically, the writer of Hebrews is saying there's nothing left to give. You, you have the gospel. You've seen it played out. You've watched It's power. You have no excuse for walking away. And if at the end of the day you've seen it all and you settle in your heart that this is a sham, where's the forgiveness left for you there? Because now it says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. So what is this unforgivable sin, going back to Mark chapter 3? What is the eternal sin? I believe that that's what Hebrews is talking about. I believe this is what Jesus means. I think it's referring to a person who comes to be enlightened in the sense that they understand the gospel. They've tasted, they've shared with the things of God in the sense that they've been around it. They've been in the church. They've seen it happening. They're watching it, and for a season... They even affirm it and they like it and they celebrate it. This often happens when there's growing churches and there's movements and everyone's excited, and people want to be a part of that. It's like you've shown up to Jesus buffet and you've tasted a little bit here and you taste a little bit there and you taste a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, you're not going to sit down for the feast yourself. You're going to resist that. You're not totally in in your heart uh, with Christ. You haven't totally repented. You haven't totally given yourself to Him. You're still holding on to pride. uh, And you want to kind of live your life your own way. At the end of the day, you're not willing to give it all up to Christ. And then after knowing it all, after seeing it all, after having all your questions answered, you reject it. That seems to be the unforgivable sin. Now, what I think Jesus means here, I don't think Jesus is saying, that these scribes have committed it, necessarily. It's not clear in the text that they have committed it. It seems that he's warning them against it. That this is a potential for them. That if they continue down this path, where they are attributing the power of Satan as the source of his power, if they continue down that road, they are guilty of this unforgivable sin. So Christian, uh, I, uh, you maybe need to be comforted now because sometimes people read this thing and they go, "Huh? Did I do it? Did I commit this unforgivable sin?" This is not like some booby trap that some Christians can like, "Oops, committed the unforgivable sin. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in trouble now." This is not that at all. I believe that the eternal sin is the settled conviction, hear that word, settled conviction, that the person and work of Christ and the message of the gospel itself, including the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of people, it is to conclude that this is a sham and then to leave it and to walk away from it. So no Christian can commit this sin. No Christian, it is possible. It is impossible, I should say, that Christians accidentally commit this sin. They don't, you don't fall into this sin. This happens after a season of learning and understanding, but then deep inside, not embracing, and then settling. And that's the key word. Settling on a rejection of Christ. All kinds of blasphemies will be forgiven, but the settled rejection of Christ... Calling all that he does a sham, a fraud, and even inspired by evil is the unforgivable sin. Now if you're a Christian, I do think this should remind you, as many of the epistles remind us, to hold fast to Christ. As the author of Hebrews writes, that we don't drift away from that which we know to be true. That we encourage one another to cling to the gospel. That we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we should hold fast to Christ knowing, hear this, believing, being convicted that Christ holds on to us. He is holding tightly onto us. You don't need to fear that you might offend him to the degree that he lets go of you. No, Christ will not let you go, Christian. Christ will not let you perish. He would not, that would be to un-Jesus Jesus, Jesus. for him to let those for whom he died, those for whom he was sent by the Father, those whom he predestined from before the foundation of the world, those whom he, he has come to save will be saved, will be redeemed, will be glorified, and will enjoy eternity forever. Do not doubt that, Christian. Jesus will not fail. But if deep down you have never given your life to Christ, And here you are taking in all this good Christian stuff. If you walk away from that, I would warn you with the warning of Christ that you are in danger of committing an unforgivable sin. Consider this with me, guys. Jesus is making earth-shattering declarations about the eternities of people's souls, isn't he? He's talking about a category of people who will never be forgiven. Isn't this a terrible thought? Doesn't this make you just want to tremble a little bit? This word, never. I mean, let that sink into your mind. Never. This is a locked door, this word. This word is a tunnel that's dark with no light at the end. For those who conclude that Jesus is a sham... That Jesus is not worthy of their allegiance, not worthy of their worship, not worthy of their dedicated life, not worthy of their obedience. They settle in the conviction that whatever Jesus taught is not true. That settled conviction is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and will never be forgiven. It's terrifying. And I would warn you to ensure that you in fact have clung to christ you're not holding anything back that you have repented of your sin you have clung to him as your only hope humbled yourself before him and said christ and christ alone you must save i want to flip it around though for those who are in christ for those who have received him for those who don't conclude that his ministry is a sham For those who do receive him as Lord and do receive him as Savior. For those who do embrace him as King. For those who do look to him for mercy. For those who do say, I'm bankrupt and you're rich, Lord. I need you. I want you. Save me. I can't save myself. You could say this, that those who make that claim and those who make that move toward Christ will always have forgiveness. You will always have the forgiveness of your sins because Jesus once and for all forgives all your sins, past sins and present sins and future sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ so that your sin tomorrow is forgiven and your sin a billion years from now in eternity with God forever, it will have been forgiven and you will not need to face the consequences of your sin. This is the reason we gather and worship And praise our Lord Jesus because our sins cannot be charged against us. They are buried. They are gone. Church, you are as white as snow. You are precious and pure and clean. And you can rejoice in this reality. And you always have forgiveness. And you always have the love of the Father. And you always have the commitment of the Son. And you always have the ministry of the Spirit. Praise him forever because of who he is and what he's done C.S. Lewis was right he said that there's only three options we could say that he's a liar like these scribes did we can say that he's a lunatic like his family did or we can say he's Lord he's Lord what you cannot do what no one can do is to say that he's moderately important. He's kind of valuable. He's worth some of my life. We cannot patronize him with that kind of nicety. He is Lord, or he is a liar, or he's crazy. It was one of those C.S. Lewis statements that when I was in high school rattled me. I kind of had lived much of my high school years acting as if Jesus was a good part of my life but not really living as if he was my life. He was my reason, my purpose. And there was this little statement that just got in my brain and I couldn't remove it and the Lord used it and it came from C.S. Lewis where he said, "A Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Are you trying to live as if Christianity is false? If you, if you believe it's false, it matters not. Just, just ignore it all. Just throw it all in the trash. If it's, If it's false, it doesn't matter at all. But if true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Friends, are you trying to live as if Jesus is just moderately important to you? Because Jesus describes his family there at the bottom in verse 34 and 35. Here are my, bro- my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That is to say, those who recognize that Christ is Lord, that God is God, and that they are not, and they submit to him and say, I'm all in with you. And I'm going to do all I can to live out obedience to the will of my Father. That is a mark of those who truly know Christ. And so, church, let's go all in. Amen? Let's go all in. Why would we reserve anything for Jesus? Why would we hold anything back? If what he has said is true, then he is Lord. And we must go all in with Christ no matter the cost. So don't play the games with Jesus, trying to have a little bit of Jesus here and a little bit of Jesus there. To live that way is to have no Jesus at all. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is stern, but it is true, and therefore it is loving for us to hear and be reminded that You call us to allegiance, And when we come to you, we remember that you are gentle, lowly, patient, long-suffering, that you never would cast us out, though we are frail, though we are weak, though we are needy, you will never forsake us as we come to you. But Lord, for those who maybe have not come to you, maybe they're still wondering whether they should, and Lord, I pray that you would make it clear that there are no other options really. And I pray that they would repent and cling to Christ and experience the great salvation you have for your children. In Jesus' name, amen.